Well, why don't you take your Bibles and uh, turn to Luke chapter 20. Uh, Luke chapter 20, I think Pastor Hobbes dealt really with the whole of the chapter of Luke 20, but we're going to pick up uh, a little bit of the ending of Luke 20, and we're going to connect it to chapter 21. Uh, uh, we're going to go through 21 verse 4. So we're actually going to look at 2045 through 21 verse 4, a short little section. Um, really before we walk into the Olivet Discourse, which is uh, uh, obviously a, a profound, impactful passage. Um, but we're going to go ahead and read uh, chapter 20, verse 45 through 21, verse 4. Remember, Luke's the historian. Remember, Luke is essentially, we know, writing to a guy by the name of Theophilus. He writes the gospel account, and then he's the great historian responsible for Acts. Uh, and we know that his interest is to really, he's a Gentile, uh, and he's writing to a Gentile. So he's sort of a different perspective than the other gospel writers. And he has definitely some interest. We're going to see that in the Olivet Discourse. It's going to be illustrated very uh, uh, particularly as Gentile interests in the second coming of the Lord. Uh, and, and we'll see, or, well, we'll see that next week. We won't go too far in that. But he writes, as you have it open to, uh, your Bible's open to Luke chapter 20. I'm just going to read a little bit from Luke 1. He says, Inasmuch as I have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handled, are handed down to, to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. And here's the purpose, so that you may know the exact truth so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So evidently there, was, there, there had to be some inexact truths that were circulating. And, um, and obviously the gospel is interested in the life and person of Jesus Christ. Uh, so as we read the gospel of Luke, it's, it's always good to try to reconstruct what perhaps maybe have been inexact. And I'll kind of leave that to your imagination this, this evening. Um, but uh, as I read, keep that in mind, and uh, then we will make some comments here on the text. So beginning in chapter 20, verse 45. And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love personal greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive all the more condemnation. Now he looked up and saw the wealthy putting their gifts into the temple treasury and he saw a poor widow putting in two leptocoins and he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all contributed to the offering from their surplus, but she, from her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. You know, at this point in uh, Luke's account, we are uh, probably around Tuesday of the Passion Week. So we have 
really in the windshield of Jesus' life, his coming crucifixion, uh, and all of the, just the, the upheaval, the pain, the agony, uh, the upheaval of the apostles, or the would-be apostles, the disciples of Jesus. Uh, we aren't quite into the, 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 the real passion yet. We're on Tuesday. Um, uh, and, and on this day, historians that study really in detail uh, the Passion Week tell us that the disciples uh, on Tuesday returned to Jerusalem. And on their way, they saw the withered fig tree, which Jesus had cursed, if you remember that. Uh, that particular day, Tuesday, Jesus would scuffle with the Pharisees at the temple, declaring curses in the form of woes upon them. Later in the evening, he's going to take the disciples up to the Mount of Olives, where he fulfills in profound display his prophetic office. Uh, but all of that will be for next week. Uh, here in our passage tonight, I think it's profoundly instructive with the cross, burial, and empty tomb literally days away uh, that Jesus takes time to give this strong warning beware, beware. He warns his disciples about abusive religious leaders. He identifies their characteristics. He exposes the twisted teamwork of pride, temporal affections of men, and the oppression that sort of flows out of all of that. In perfect disciple-making form, I would argue, Jesus immediately illustrates the destructive byproduct of that hideous interplay by giving to us the widow, the story of the widow's might. And in so doing, he grounds the future of the church in the truth that pride is a particular potent poison in the life of religious leaders. Pride is a particular potent poison in the life of religious leaders. It is critical that church leaders, that our church leaders, our pastors, our elders, our deacons, our ministry leaders maintain well, and here's the, really the, the genius of this passage, that we maintain well our affections. In order to combat pride and all of its sad byproducts, so in order to accurately dissect Jesus' teaching tonight, I want to first begin with what Jesus does not say. Okay, I think it's important that we understand what Jesus does not say. And then, number two, we're going to look at what Jesus does say. How's that for a beautiful, you know, <laughs> that is not one of those homiletically beautiful outlines. All right. So if you're studying to be a pastor, you can do better and you should. But that's what we're going with tonight. We're going to look at what Jesus does not say. And then we're going to look at what he does say with respect to this passage. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say that the spirit of our age is an age of, uh, or at least we're told by people who study these things, we're post-modern, uh, we're, we're post-sort uh, of deconstruction um, into exactly what I'm not sure, but it's been sort of the spirit of the age to really challenge leaders a titled leadership to expose how they have unwittingly or wittingly really isn't the issue, but they have themselves been the fountainheads of oppression 
or philosophies or whatever, but oppression has been a particular interest of the generations that currently exist and uh, have preceded them by a few years. So, so this idea of trying to, to, to deconstruct, to, um, to, to take authority and not to necessarily appreciate all the things it is doing, but to really put a microscope on the things that it does negatively and to expose that and to bring them down, right? That's sort of the spirit of the age. Well, we, we sort of have that a little bit here. Uh, uh, the tendency, obviously, uh, in uh, perhaps the day and age in which we live is just kind of throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. I mean, if there's a hint of oppression, the whole thing goes out, right? Leaders, the whole system, the whole structure, you know, everything's gone, so we're left with anarchy, chaos, no structure. But at least we don't have guys in charge, you know, being oppressive, right? At least you don't have that. Uh, you can kind of think about, you know, defunding the police, all these kinds of things I think would be, you know, sort of worldly kinds of illustrations of the spirit of the age. Um, and what I want to do is, is argue very uh, candidly from the word of God is that oppression is never right, okay? Jesus, the Bible, uh, 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 argues against oppression and it seeks to change the character of men and women uh, particularly those who are in authority if they are the ones who tend to be the oppressors and it tries to change them in such a way that uh, they are no longer oppressive right that's really one of the goals as we become more like Jesus Christ or one of the byproducts of this wonderful thing called sanctification but what Jesus never advocates is throwing out the baby with the bathwater, sort of reducing life to chaos without structure. Uh, our pastor always teaches us there's a divine order, there's always authority and submission, uh, home, right, government and church. It exists. Um, and uh, it is not ours to, to, to throw out the structure, but it certainly is of interest to the church. It should be of interest to you and I not only within the own, our own sphere of authority, uh, I hope we don't want to be oppressive. I hope we, we, we desire to, you know, not, not participate in that. As well as the structures we exist in, we want to try to uh, not, tr I don't want to reduce it, but we ought to try to as well understand where and if oppression exists and try to um, apply God's word to it. And specifically, we're talking about in the context of the church here. Um, so, with that in mind, the first thing we want to understand is what does Jesus not say? Okay, what does he not say? Um, well, the first thing we want to see here is Jesus, or I want to argue what Jesus is not saying, is he is not depreciating in any way the law. He's not depreciating in any way the law. Uh, and you say, well, pastor, where do you even get that idea of law? Well, in verse 46, Luke's, uh, or Jesus says, beware of the scribes. Now, uh, uh, probably a better, and some of the interpretations on your lap may read, experts in the law. Uh, these are not just men who, you know, look at one copy and try to copy it accurately to another piece of paper. That's not who these people are, although that was one of their jobs. But what really qualified them for being able to have that job is they were experts in the law. So Jesus is not here sort of wanting to throw out the whole structure of the law. That's not what he's talking about. 
at all. These are experts in the law. Uh, he's not advocating getting rid of the law. He's not depreciating the expert level of these men. He's not saying, you know, boy, you know, the big oppressor or the big issue of oppression is when people become experts and they, you know, they sort of lift, you know, they're better than everybody else and so they can kind of have their way. No, Jesus is not um, in any way, shape, or form uh, uh, saying that expert level is a bad idea. Uh, he doesn't say that at all. Nor is he saying the pathway and time that it took these men to become experts in the law was a waste of time. You know, sometimes in our tradition, our, our fundamental Bible-believing tradition, we, we can uh, get lost here a little bit. And I would say that uh, there have been times uh, when uh, men who were supposed experts in the field of theological studies, men who thought they knew everything, uh, and, and they were determined to sort of rake out of the church their simple childlike faith in the scriptures, and they in fact set about to do that, that there were men like that. I... I I think we can historically argue that that has been the case. But what we want to understand is there certainly are apostate men and apostate seminaries. Uh, but within the tradition of our own, of our own um, orb, there are good seminaries. And you know what? I can go to Fuller Theological Seminary, which I would argue is an apostate seminary, and I can get a Master of Divinity. 96 credit hours, studying, well, I don't know what they study. They historically, or I could go to Yale. I don't know if Yale still has a seminary. I think they probably do. And I can get an MDiv, and, uh, and, and there are a certain track. Um, and obviously, that kind of an MDiv is very different than a Master of Divinity that I would get, let's say, at a Bob Jones Theological Seminary or a Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. But the rigor, if it's a good seminary, the rigor ought to be relatively equivalent. Uh, so, so the time, you know, and the tradition sometimes goes like this, you know, ah, you don't need to go to seminary. You know, they just ruin you, you know. No, that... You know, let, let's, we don't want that sort of disposition and attitude. That is not what Jesus is saying here. He's not arguing that expert level is bad. He's not arguing that the time that it takes to become an expert in theological matters is bad. He's not saying that at all. Um, uh, pursuing expertise in matters of the Bible is commended. We have... We have little chapters devoted to this. Proverbs chapter 2, my son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding, for if you cry out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek her, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge understanding. So you have this beautiful confluence uh, what becomes critical for the would-be expert is the disposition of his or her heart. You see that in Proverbs chapter 2 as they pursue their expertise in theological study. What is equally critical is to understand the goal of theological training. We have it there in Proverbs 2 as well. Then you will understand the what of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. And here's, here's something I would say that is uh, profound. That the end of theological training, the goal of it is a disposition, not a degree. 
Certainly we give degrees, we structure, we scope and sequence program, but the proper end of a good theological training is men who are produced who know and understand the fear of the Lord. That's what we're looking for, a disposition. So any man who comes in here trumpeting a degree, disciples know this. That man is to be viewed with a raised eyebrow. The man who comes in with a disposition of the fear of the Lord, we praise God for his expertise. We need it. We need men who study hard the Word of God and can preach it and teach it accurately. Because this is life. This is the, uh, you know, the, the, this has the ability to reach deep down inside and, and to discern between the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So Jesus is not saying any of those things. He's not, you know, uh, we want to understand that. So now we know what Jesus is not saying. Let's turn our hearts to what Jesus is saying. So what is Jesus saying here in our passage in uh, Luke chapter 20? Well, the first observation I want to make is uh, collectively, these particular religious leaders, and you can sort of parallel in your mind religious leaders today, but collectively, these religious leaders had moved from a place of trust and usefulness to a place of reservation and warning. Collectively, as a core of individuals, they had moved this way. Rather than a source of trusted, well-reasoned wisdom, toward the end of God-fearing justice, they became the very fountainhead of injustice and oppression. What is so profound is how that happens. And religious leaders, pastors, teachers, deacons, elders, I'm talking to you, missionaries, and me, and those of you who vote on us. Because <laughs> you got to know. It's the how this happens that to me as I'm reading this, I'm like, wow. There's a level of simplicity in how it happens. And, and and that's what's so, you know, what does Jesus say in another passage? I, I'm probably yanking this out of context, but it's the little foxes that spoil the grapes. It's the how that it happens. It's profound. One thing that cannot be argued from this particular text. Now, it's argued in other texts. Paul's going to argue very strongly. But in this particular text, it cannot be argued that it was the experts in the law's whole goal as they set out to be oppressive. That cannot be argued from this particular text. So something else happened. There are other realities operating. So to some degree we want to look at this oppression as a byproduct more than as something that was intended and set out to do and be, but it had been institutionalized over generations. Something happened. There, there, there's a turn of a corner at some point in time. When that time was, I'm not sure. The fact that we have here in the Gospel of Luke is we're there. All right? We're there. So this devouring of widow houses, we read that. 
And we're going to have a, a life example of that. Um, verse 47, who devour widows' houses. I mean, this is the, this is the oppression. This is the, this is the, uh, the tragic, horrific reality. So it wasn't what they necessarily set out to do. Rather, it was a result of the application of the law that completely disregarded the intention of the law. Completely missed it. As they were trying to apply the law rigorously, they missed... They, 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 were, they, they lost the forest for the tree in their interpretive grids. And that was... Who knows, at some point in time, maybe when they were kindly motivated. They were just trying to, I don't know, keep people pure. Maybe that was their motivation. So fundamentally, we have here in this text, it was the awful byproduct of personal pride. And at some point in time, it had become irretrievable due to the poison of pride and the love of adulation. And here it is, teachers and leaders. It was a love for adulation, and, and I'm going to use this word, in your affections. There it is. Did you see what Jesus said? It was in what they liked. It was in what they loved. What operates in your affection, dear leader? You know, I like and love things in the world all the time. They're very attractive to me. But as a leader in the church, I cannot become so temporally minded in liking and loving long robes. What would be a cultural equivalent? I love to look good. So I'm going to go out and spend a lot of time, energy, trying to look Good. It's a very temporal thing controlling my affection. Now, do I want to look good? Yes. Would I naturally long to take lots of time to try to look good? Absolutely. But I can't. Right? I, 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 Jesus has a whole different um, mindset, certainly for all believers. And, 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 and more pointedly, for those who are leaders, leaders. So it's in their affections. And this is the warning for us men and gals who are ministry leaders. The same thing for you. They loved what? They loved their long robes. They loved respectful greetings in the marketplace. Oh, pastor. Oh, you're, you're so wonderful. Oh, we're so thankful for you. We're, you know, and, and you all say those kinds of things. You know. But I've got to discipline my life, my affections, not to long for that. I've got to figure out another, you know, I don't know, well, praise the Lord. I've got to, I've got to jab back at it. <laughs> you know, to, it's not me, it's Christ in me. It's Jesus, because I know myself. I can get very easily caught up in that adulation. Got to be careful with that. They loved that. They loved um, uh, chief seats in the synagogue. They loved that too, right? They loved, you know, they loved this thing right here. I know that we're not 
you know, I, I think there's a, uh, a religious leader that's not quite what we're talking about. We're, we're just trying to draw some parallels of application. So, oh, I have to preach. If I'm not preaching and teaching, I'm not happy. Well, hmm, 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 I don't know. I'm glad I can preach and get to serve God's people. And um, so just, just a thought there. So the problem was one of love and affection, not data and mind. It boiled down to simply what they liked. They were held accountable for the fact that the very law that they were experts in taught them so very differently. However, they had become so blind to it. The lesson is a profound one. Affections, if not disciplined, will always trump the date of truth. I can argue that. I believe that's true in this passage. Experts in the law. Experts in their Bible. Paul's later on going to talk to about, about false teachers whose God is their what? Their belly. This is the exact same thing. Paul got it from Jesus right here. That's it. That's it. And I've got a, in my own life, you know, as a, as a pastor, as a leader at Grace Church of Menor, make sure that, that uh, my God is not my belly. I'll try to suck it in and get it out of the way if I can, but I'm afraid it's, we're working hard at that. <laughs> Maybe you need to work a little harder. Um, so the affections that the law sought to turn toward the eternal love of God moved from eternal to temporal. Those affections became very interested in the things of this world rather than the things of eternal interests. And it occurred in the affections. Um, the notoriety their expertise afforded them was intoxicating. You know, notoriety is an intoxicating reality. And... Um, it can overwhelm any man or any woman. And we've got to be careful about that. The longest chapter in all of the Bible teaches what an expert in the law is up against and what is especially required of them to maintain their affections. The reality is, is that the study of scriptures can be poisonous. And how can it be poisonous? Well, Psalm 119 tells us, it does make you wiser than your enemies. Ha! Huh. I can be smarter than my enemies. Not only can it make you wiser than your enemies, according to Psalm 119, 97 through 100, it can give you more insight than all of your teachers. Wow. That's another potential pride thing. And then this. It can give more understanding than the experiences of the old. That it gives to them. In other words, when we study God's word, there are so many amazing benefits. It literally puts you ahead of the curve if you allow it. But the irony is being ahead of the curve can really work into your affections. And you can become proud if you're not careful. Listen to the rest. It requires, uh, according to Psalm 119, uh, Psalm 119, 101 and following, it requires restraint to stay out of evil ways. Experts in the law, you've got to have restraint. 119, 1 and 2, you've got to discipline yourself not to turn aside. 
You've got in verse 102, confess that these are God's words and they originate from Him. I didn't dream these things up. Nothing in it in me exists. I can come up with these things. And then in Psalm 119, 103, I have to direct my all of my affections to the Word of God rather than, and you can read it there, the five human senses. <laughs> in other words, there's something particularly about a lover of the law, and David's proclaiming this, and he wants everybody to be a lover of the law, right? But there's something, you know, it's just, it's not all uh, happy, happy. There are still radical realities that exist in the human heart even when we enjoy a robust understanding of God's word that we have to be cautious about and it really begins in our affections. So the personal litmus test for experts in the law is are we progressively hating this is Psalm 119.104 every evil way there's the litmus test man I mean, it says every one of them. And, and that's particularly dealing with the ones that are existing in our own hearts and minds. Those are the ones. Do, do, we, do we really, do those, you know, those ought to get us. And we ought to certainly be sorrowful and beg God for his forgiveness. And if we don't, if we don't check that, uh, there will be a time when this whole thing turns on a corner. And it will be irretrievable if we're not careful. And we'll begin to devour widows' houses at its worst. And you can, I suppose, put in any body or anything, children, your church, leadership that's growing in your church, you know, you become that kind of a guy who oppresses all that and sort of diminishes it and sort of holds a lid down on it instead of letting it grow to its beautiful fruition under the Holy Spirit's direction as you humbly serve it in the expertise that you have in the law. So what Jesus declares is the acid test of pride, uh, which we would argue at this point is an infection of the affections of religious leaders. He now illustrates in a real life lesson, I believe. And he does so with the widow's might. And he does it in such a beautiful way. He does it in a way not to, in any way, uh, uh, demean or diminish the widow. But I do believe he's using her as an example of the result of what he has just spoken of in chapter 20. 21, and he looked up and saw, he looked up. The historian tells us that he looked up, we're assuming, in connection with just the previous pericope, previous subject matter. He looks up and he directs his disciples' attention uh, to the rich putting their gifts into the treasury and he sees a poor widow putting in two small copper coins and he said truly I say to you this poor widow put in more than all of them to some degree he commends her for they all out of the surplus put into the offering but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on all of it. Her house was devoured in an inappropriate way. All because there were experts in the law whose affections 
turned to temporal matters. They loved how they looked. They longed to be respected and publicly greeted. And the result was widows who were giving in a manner in which was being prescribed. Listen to this. One commentator, an early commentator, and I'm not even sure this is a a born-again commentator. This is just a, a guy who's just reading the text. Upon reflecting on this passage, this Jesus' life lesson, states this about the widow's gift. Generous as it was, it was too small to be of any real help to the temple, and it was ultimately a waste of money. How do we know that? Because in the next verses, Jesus is going to take his disciples to the Mount of Olives. And he's going to say, in a few short days, there will not be one stone left upon another of this temple building. A waste of money. So, now, nobody knows all of that, right? He's just reflecting on the text. But I think he's unpacking and teasing out the tragedy And the real tragedy, and he's really trying to, I think, and and to some degree, we would do well as religious leaders to really feel the tragedy when we allow our own personal affections to begin to moderate, to dictate what we're doing with our expertise in the law and why we have it, what it's for, I think what Jesus is saying is, look, be careful, beware, beware, beware of this in religious leaders that we see outside of the church. Paul's going to bring it into the church later on. And I think profoundly for each one of us, or to some degree leaders, many of us as elders and deacons, pastors, missionaries, we particularly, James is going to warn us, don't be many teachers. He's going to say that. This is This is why. Because you can really mess up people's lives with your words and with your affection. So be careful. Be careful. Be humble. Recognize that this all comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible, um, and the wisdom of God's revelation. And uh, I think the applications are pointed, I think, for many of us. I think it's good to We have a beautiful, wonderful opportunity, you know, monthly, where we get to sit before the Lord's table, where we are finally, you know, where as leaders, you know, we elders sit up here, and, uh, you know, and I don't sit before you at that moment. I sit before the table, and 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 I see... You know, illustrated for me, again, in a life lesson, the the horrific death, bloody death of Jesus as he absorbs the wrath of God for my sin, my arrogance, the potential that I have of taking even what is pure, lovely, amazing, what Psalm 19 says about God's word, and twisting it and using it for my own designs. Wow. I got to be careful. 
I got to be careful. And we all need to be careful. And discipler, disciples, um, as we're all about interests of discovering who the next leaders are here at Christ Church of Menor. That's what we do. We're disciple making disciples of Jesus Christ and a critical corollary is there are gifts that are operating in this room in this church and we want to find them and some of those are pastor teacher. Some of those are deacon. We want to rejoice in that uh, but we also want to be careful and uh, help to develop the kind of disposition and demeanor that is required by God and we want to beware beware let's bow for a word of prayer Father we thank you for uh, the truth here uh, we thank you for uh, the Lord Jesus Christ who is our high priest he's been touched with the feelings of our infirmities he's came, he came to this earth and he saw this and on uh, it's so profound he, he takes time to teach this critical lesson on, on the week that he's going to go to the cross. This would be critical for the church age. We're, we're, we're not, we do not have our, our, our leadership positions by virtue of our pedigree. We're, we have it by virtue of what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of us and the gifting. One thing that is absolutely incompatible is personal pride and temporal affections that moderate the message that we're trying to give. So Lord, please protect Grace Church of Menor. Uh, help us to beware and help us to joyfully enjoy a future generation of godly leadership uh, who have the disposition of their expertise in the law, the, the, whole, the whole point of it all, that they would know the fear of the Lord be able to transfer that to their generation. We thank you for it, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You are all dismissed. Lord bless you and have a great week. Next week, we'll, Lord willing, work through the Olivet Discourse. It's a challenging passage, and uh, we'll look through that together. All right. Good night.